Now turn with me this morning in your Bible to James chapter 5. We're going to sing or read together the first 12 verses of James chapter 5. For those who were here on Wednesday night at the prayer and Bible study meeting, we were thinking about verse 4, thinking about the lovely title, The Lord of Sabaoth. And I was praying about the harvest. And there's another verse of scripture come to me here in this chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. James chapter 5, and we're reading from verse 1. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered. And the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord, For an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from James chapter 5 and verse 7. It reads, Be patient, Therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord, behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and have long patience for it, until he receive the early and the latter rain. And my theme today is remembering the hope of the harvest. 
Now, this is traditionally known in Northern Ireland as Harvest Sunday. Usually in the month of October, we set aside a particular Sunday to give praise and thanks to the great Lord of the harvest. And we bring in the flowers and the precious fruit of the earth into the house of God just to remind us that he is indeed the Lord of every harvest. You see, he's called in the Bible in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. You see, every natural and temporal harvest, every spiritual harvest, every final harvest at the end of the world is under his control. And to me, it's wonderful to remember and to know that the Lord has invested the earth with the particular ability to yield forth the precious fruits of the land. Listen to the word of God. Over there in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 65, we read, Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God, which is full of water. Thou preparest him corn. When thou hast so provided for it, thou waterest the ridges thereof abundantly, thou settlest the furrows thereof, thou makest it soft with showers, thou blessest the spring in thereof, thou crownest the year with thy goodness, and thy paths drop fatness, they drop upon the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice in every side. The pastures are clothed with flock. The valleys also are covered over with corn. They shout for joy. They also Sing. And remember, it is God that has bestowed upon us all the material gifts that we enjoy. It is him that gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. We have been singing all good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. And I realized this morning, and that sounds old-fashioned, that that sounds out of date, maybe sounds a bit foolish to many when it comes to the harvest, when it comes to food in the table, food in our belly. Many sadly leave the Lord of the harvest completely out of the picture. And, and yet the, the precious fruit of the earth is now seen today as the product of human technology, human skill, human labor, man's ability and, uh, to produce. Uh, but, but it's not so. It, it, it's not true. And, and yet there, there's coming a day when natural puny man will discover just how dependent on the Lord they actually have been and how accountable to him they really are. Remember, the Bible teaches that in him we move and live and have our being. So at this harvest time, you see, every harvest time reminds us of the goodness of God to us. How he has blessed us with food and clothing and health and strength and the abundance of material things to enjoy. This is not merely a time just to pay lip service to him. It's not a time to be flippant or, or light-hearted. If he's the Lord of the harvest, then we need to recognize him as such. And then we need to live out our lives in light of who and what he is. You see, many don't. It's not true today. Harvest time, harvest thanksgiving, and yet many have no thought or regard for the Lord of the harvest. And what's true today was true in James's day. 
You see, James was addressing many rich landowners and farmers in his day, owners of olive farms, owners of vineyards, and these wealthy landowners were guilty of not paying their workers their wages. They were sending them home with no pay. And James writes and tells them that this was a crying sin in the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. And this was cruel treatment. And this was unfair. Remember in those days there was no industrial tribunals, no courts, no trade unions, no redress at all. So these poor believers, 15 times he uses the word brethren. They are brethren in Christ. And all they can do is cry into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And he heard them and he sent them a message. And the message was this. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. You see, when we read the first six verses, indeed, you're reading what we could really call white hot stuff of judgment and condemnation. James is telling these wealthy landowners that this is a serious sin before the Lord. That it's a serious sin to keep back the wages of your employees in the field. And his purpose in writing then is to encourage and comfort the heart and minds of God's people in such circumstances. And, and, and he writes to tell them, despite the vicious set of circumstances you face, despite the terrible treatment being meted out to you by your rich employees, you're to be patient. You're to establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now if you look at verse 7 very carefully, you'll learn that James uses the illustration of the hope of the harvest to hammer home his point. He's teaching there in that verse that every believer is like a farmer. Behold the husbandman. And the husbandman does everything that he can do with the strength and power that God gives him to produce a harvest. But then he has to, having done all that he can do, he has to patiently wait on the Lord to produce the results of his labor. And in that sense, then, he has patience and he establishes heart until God works, until God manifests himself. As I looked at this text when I went home on Wednesday night, I thought to myself, well, there's three things. I wrote them down. Here's the first thing, the portrait of the farmer. Look at the words in verse 7. Behold the husbandman. Now, now we'll pause there. You see, the husbandman is a reference to the farmer. And in our day, there's many different types of farming. You've got a dairy farmer, a sheep farmer, a pig farmer. You've got cereal farmers. They're growers of crops, of the wheat and the corn and the barley. You've also horticultural farmers. And they're growing cabbages and carrots and lettuce, tomatoes and mushrooms. And isn't it true that, that farmers are a strange group of people? And yet here it is in the Bible, behold the husbandman. The, this is a wonderful title. The word husbandman means behold the farmer. Now think of Northern Ireland farmers. Aren't they the greatest complainers in the world? 
They complain about the weather. Too wet, too dry, too hot, too cold, too windy, too still. If they're selling animals at the mart, it's never just right, is it? That the mart's cluttered with animals. Or the right buyers aren't there. Or they've got a poor price for this calf or that beast. They are indeed the biggest complainers and also the biggest worriers in the world. And yet, despite all their concerns, the complaining and the worrying, here's a wonderful fact that the harvest time always comes round. And the harvest is always gathered in. It might be a bad harvest. It could be a bumper harvest. But it's always gathered in. There's always been a seed time and harvest. And these men who are farmers, they know the secrets of farming. And and they know that they must always take the long view when it comes to farming. And they know they've got to work. And they know they've got to wait. And they're deeply aware that all that they do to produce anything is ultimately in the hands of the Lord of the harvest. We should thank God for the farmers in Northern Ireland. We should remember them in our prayers. The Lord knows their worries and their fears. And they're real. And many of them, of course, are good believers And they seek to honor the Lord. Many are strict Sabbatarians. They won't bring their crops in on the Lord's day, despite the weather, despite or regardless of who is prospering. They refuse to disobey the word of the Lord. The fourth commandment stands, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And many of them on the Lord's day, they're, they're found in the house of God. So when I think of a farmer, I think of a wonderful title, because we're getting a picture here. A wonderful title. Do you know that in God's economy, the Holy Spirit used James to tell God's people to think of the farmer, to to gaze upon the farmer, to, to, to ponder the farmer. Not a policeman, not a postman, a politician, not a programmer of ICT, but a farmer. I wonder why. Is it is it not an exalted name? Is it not because this is a title that God takes to himself? Over there in the book of John, in John chapter 15 and verse 1, the Lord Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Now think of that. My father's a farmer. You see, it's a divine name. My father's the ultimate husbandman. And I believe that every Christian is called by God to be a farmer. And God has given every Christian a likeness to himself. And God is giving you and me a part in his great work of working in his field. Because this world is his field. He says, I'm giving you a part in the work that I'm involved in, in this world. I'm the ultimate farmer. And you under God are, 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 are under me as little farmers. Think of it. He's a farmer. And he has a field. And he is gathering in his harvest. And he's the Lord of the harvest. And he has given every believer in Christ a place and a part in his harvest work. That's not insignificant. 
that will be ultimately rewarded, we believe, in the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth the second time. I put it to you this morning, the picture of a farmer. It's a wonderful title because in God's economy, God used it of himself. I believe also it's a working title. I see every farmer, regardless of type, engages in hard, demanding work. Sunrise to sunset. Farming demands effort. Toy, sweat, pain, hard work. There's time involved. There's dedication. There has to be a love of the job. The farmer puts himself about He even endures times of inconvenience. He has a busy schedule, a schedule that can oftentimes be without change and and he doesn't have much time for for social calls or or social outings. You think of the life of the farmer. There's plowing. There's harrowing work. There's rotivating. There's sowing. There's weeding. And there's reaping. You see, it's not a picnic. It's, It's not wee buns. It's a hard, difficult task. Now, you take, for example, in our own community here, those that are dairy farmers. Oftentimes, they're tired in their body. They might even love a break. They might say, well, I'd love to go two weeks to the seaside. But they just can't lift the phone and book a hotel and drive off down the road. Why can they not go? Well, they've got a herd to milk. They've got a responsibility to the cows. The cows will not milk themselves. And his priority is to put his herd first. In fact, I heard a story about a wife complaining to a minister that when it comes to the cows or me, I believe the cows win every time. Now, God is saying to every believer, I have put you in a spiritual farming business. And it's not a part-time work. And it's not a picnic. It demands hard work. It demands sacrifice. It demands time. It demands your labor. Even in times when you see no signs of reward or signs of success. I want to ask this morning. I asked it myself. I want you to ask the same question. Am I a worker for God? In God's spiritual field. You you think of plowing, rotivating and harrowing and sowing. The farmer just doesn't think about it. He just doesn't ponder it. He, He just doesn't look out at the fields and says, well, that needs to be done. No, he has to physically get involved. As I'm saying, there's sacrifice and work and effort and time involved. You think this morning of the Lord's harvest field. You think of lost sinners all around us in our community. And what do we need? We need to see a great evangelical work of the Spirit of God again in Northern Ireland. And how does God bring that work about? He doesn't bring it about in a vacuum. He brings it about when God's people pledge themselves to be workers for God, to go after lost souls, to to pledge themselves to be farm laborers for Jesus Christ in his harvest field. If you think of the context here, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields. 
Think of those working in those fields in the first century in the land of Israel. And then you think about those that are working physically in the fields today. And the Lord is saying to us, I want you to be physically involved in the spiritual harvest fields for me. We could ask the question, what are we doing for God? We could ask, what have we done for God in 2019? What have we attempted in his name? How much have we died to self and sin in 2019? How much have we give ourselves to the reading and the studying of the scriptures? How much have we faithfully labored in prayer for precious souls to be saved in our family and in our community? Remember, someone has rightly said the church only goes forward on its knees. What about this life of witnessing and this life of evangelism? You see, a, a farmer, it's a working title. It's not only a wonderful title, but it's a working title. And also, it's a waiting title. Notice this word in the text. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and have long patience for it. Think of the word patience. You see, a farmer is not indifferent to the need of hard work. But he's not impatient either. He has to take the long view. He has to have patience. Now, what does that word patience mean in a biblical sense? Sometimes we think, well, if I have patience, I'll not get annoyed or upset or irritable about things. I'll not be a complainer. Well, that's not the biblical picture. There's a bigger picture. There's a biblical picture. You see, patience in the spiritual context means Submission to God in trying circumstances. It means waiting on God for a gracious outcome to take place. Human patience is controlled by events. We're left frustrated and angry and complain. But biblical patience keeps its eye on the Lord of the harvest. He's in control of the outcome. I must have faith in him. I must have quiet confidence in him. I must believe that all will be well, including the very timing upon God's working. You think of the farmer looking over his field that he's plowed and he's rotivated and harrowed and he's sowed the seed. And he's looking over it and all he can see is the brown earth watching over what he's sown. And he's waiting for what? The green shoots to appear. He's waiting for the day of the harvest. And what is true in natural physical life has to be true in our work for the Lord. There's no big mystery about it. We must wait on the Lord because it's the Lord alone that gives the increase. And by this means, By seeing the Lord of the harvest who controls events and us having faith in him and quiet confidence that that all will be well, including his time for working, then we will do as the Bible says, we will establish our hearts. The word establish in the verse 8 means to steadfastly set our hearts or fix our hearts. 
Fix our hearts on the Lord of the harvest. Fix our hearts upon the coming of the Lord. Let that keep our hearts. Let nothing keep us from Christ. Let's keep on praying. Let's keep on laboring. Let's keep on being faithful as we wait for the Lord to come and work. Now that's the portrait of the farmer. He's a worker. He's a waiter. He's a wonder to God because he bears God's very title in his name. I want you to see secondly and very quickly here the promise of the fruit. Uh, Notice the words in the text, waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. You see, there's going to be a harvest. And here we are, Harvest Thanksgiving Sunday has come round again, as it has done these 20 years that I've been here. You see, the harvest is always certain. Seed time and harvest shall not cease. And the harvest is as certain as the coming of Christ. Oh, that we could see the natural harvest and link it up with the second coming of Christ because they're tied together. And you think of this reference, waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. You think of waiting for spiritual fruit. Do you know that there are 72 references to the word precious in the Bible? I've already preached a series of messages on 11 of them, I believe. And the 12th one that I wanted to preach on was this word, the precious fruit of of the earth. And isn't that true literally? God has given us the precious fruit of the earth. In other words, God has provided everything that we have needed to sustain us physically on this earth. We were singing all good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. It's James that says in James 1 and verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And come up down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And what is true, literally, has to be true spiritually. Can I just say this? If you think about the precious fruit of the earth, think, think of the precious fruit in our lives. Do you know that God has a fruit for all that we are, and all that we say, and all that we do? Doesn't the Bible talk about the fruit of the Spirit? In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. A ninefold fruit. And surely there's nothing more precious for a believer that he himself is abounding more and more in the fruit of the Spirit, and that individual realizes that they're being changed and transfigured into the very image of Christ because of the abundance of the fruit of the Spirit. What about the fruit of the labor of our hands? Is that precious in the eyes of the Lord? Do we labor with the thought that I'm going to receive one day, well done, good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord? Remember Samuel Rutherford said of Anworth in Scotland, if one soul from Anworth joins me in heaven, then my heaven will be like two heavens. Will we have any profession? When we get to heaven that we attempted to win one soul for Jesus Christ. 
Will the fruit of our labor not be rewarded by the Lord of the harvest? Is it not true that we're going to reap a lot more than we've sown? What about the fruits of righteousness? You see, the harvest time that's coming is a time of divine judgment. At the harvest time, the end of the world, will be the condemnation of the wicked. All who are strangers to grace and to God and every rejecter of Christ. And that's the context here. James is giving that this crying sin of the exploitation of the rich employees using their employees in a cruel, heartless way, deliberately looking out for themselves, holding back the wages, putting themselves first, using the body of the poor, their poor laborers for their wealth. And James is saying, this is a crying sin before the Lord. But, but don't worry, brethren, because payday is coming someday for these rich, wealthy farmers. You think about the exploitation of the poor that's still going on throughout the world. Millions of hardworking men and women not receiving a fair day's pay for a fair day's hard work. Workers should not be exploited. They shouldn't be used. They shouldn't be abused. Why? Because the God of heaven takes note of these things. And there's a harvest of judgment that's coming. Where do you stand this morning in relation to God? In relation to Jesus Christ? In relation to eternity? In relation to the fact that he loved you enough to come into the world and shed his precious blood? And on the ground of that blood, every sin of yours can be forgiven. You think of the many that are rich in this world's good, but not rich toward God. Was not the problem of the farmer in Luke 12. He was rich in this world's goods, material provision, but he wasn't rich toward God. That was a sin. He left God out of his life. He forgot about the Lord of the harvest. You think of his gold and silver rising up and witnessing against him. And that's what James is saying about these rich, wealthy landowners who had olive farms and vineyards in his day. And he's saying, your gold and silver, it will witness against you. You have heaped treasure together for the last days because there's a harvest of judgment that's coming. See, there's a promise of fruit. Is there not a harvest in people's bodies today? People who have left God out of their life, who are addicted to alcohol and drugs and many other things, you see, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. The law of the harvest, the law of the soil, is the law of the soul. And, and what shall your reaping be after the sowing of sin? And yet God has given you time to repent and time to get right with himself. But there's also a harvest of joy. The precious fruit of the earth. You see, when we think of this word precious, we think of joy, we think of happiness, we think of bliss. We live in the midst of trials and temptations, yes, but they're only temporal. The Bible talks in Isaiah 3, verse 10, about eating the fruit of your doings, the fruits of righteousness, the fruit that we have in Christ, being fully realized and fully manifested, spiritual fruit. Precious spiritual fruit. There's the preciousness of the fruit. And I want to close with this thought. The prospect of the future. Notice the reference here in the text. Be patient therefore brethren unto the coming of the Lord. 
You see, this ultimately is a reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you before we finish, there's a coming of judgment in this life. Remember over in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2 and 5, there was a message to the church at Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Here's a church called Ephesus, and they had left their first love. Their love for Jesus Christ had cooled. They weren't loving him with all their soul and mind and strength. And they were told to repent of this position. And they were warned, if you'll not repent, if you'll not deal with this situation, then I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to come and remove the candlestick out of the place. And you'll no more shine for me in the location where I have put you. And is it not true, if we think about the history of the Christian church, that many churches, that, that God had raised up spiritually, that were numerically strong, that were financially sound, that were influential in the world, key players in their day and generation, because of sin and apostasy, then the Lord withdrew. And the Lord left them alone. And eventually they died and withered. And where are they today? The candlestick is gone. You, look, you go to Ephesus. Look for the church there. It's absent. And is not my fear. And that ought to be our fear for our own free Presbyterian church. It's not the enemy on the outside I fear. It's not the persecution that could come. It's not the personal affliction and the trouble and the sorrow that's heaped upon us by individuals and their, their treatment toward us, whether their words or their deeds, but it's that God might withdraw from us and leave us alone to our own devices and go through all the mechanisms of worship. The coming of the Lord ultimately refers to the second coming, but there's a coming of judgment in this life. And he was teaching God's people, the brethren in his day, to whom he was writing, that were being persecuted and afflicted. He was reminding them of this. But what about his coming to bless? Does the Bible not talk about the day of his visitation? Do we not pray, visit this vine? Is there not true in history that there's been times when God has come to bless his people? And God has brought about a change. And God has brought about transformation and turns things around. And, and totally changed the situation. And he's come and answered a prayer. And we can think about the history of Northern Ireland, 1620, 1859, 1920s, even the history, the formation of our own denomination. You see, God has come at times to bless his people. And we long for that. What about coming to call us home to himself? John 14, verse 3. Isn't that true as well? The Lord Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And does he not come in death and call his people home to himself? And what about then his physical, visible, literal second coming to the earth? You see, we're assured of the Lord's return. The Lord Jesus is coming back. 
He has promised us, I will come again. And no matter what theologians say or preachers say, we, we, we should anticipate the Lord's return. And we should be willing to announce the Lord's return. And then when he returns, all the wrongs are going to be rightified. And when he returns, we'll see the vindication of the gospel. And when he returns, he's coming as the judge at the door. You see, there's the prospect of the future. What does the future hold for us? The future holds for us that we need the Lord to come in mighty power and blessing. The Lord to strengthen us and help us to hold on and be patient and establish our hearts. Living in light of the ultimate coming of Christ when he comes as the judge. To right all the wrongs. To put down evil. As the Bible tells us there in the book of Thessalonians. It says there in chapter 2. Or chapter 1. And to you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I commend to you this morning this theme, the hope of the harvest. See yourself as a Christian, as a Christian farmer. Own that title with wonder because it's God's title. Pledge to be a worker. Tell your soul you must wait on God. Enjoy the precious fruit of the earth physically, but, but the precious fruit in your life spiritually. And keep this prospect of a bright future in front of you. That there is judgment in this life. There's judgment to come, but God can come and bless. God can come and bring us home. And God will ultimately come to this earth to receive his people unto himself. May the Lord take these few thoughts this morning and bless them to you.